the most important thing you could ever do is to be extremely persistent no matter what. And I think that's a lesson that people eventually learn if they really are still interested in going the same path that they, they started in, but not to give up and to to see any kind of setback that or imagine setback that the person feels they, they've gone through that it really shouldn't end what their aspirations are that they should still keep going. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artist of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artist of Data Science and on Twitter at Artist of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artist of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Our guest today is shaping a vision of the future through spatial computing that leverages virtual and augmented reality. Her multidisciplinary background includes a joint MBA MA from the University of Southern California, an MS in management and systems from New York University, and a BA from University of Pennsylvania with a major in economics. And if those credentials weren't impressive enough, she has near-fluent proficiency in Mandarin, intermediate in Japanese, and beginning in Korean. She currently serves as CEO of Infinite Retina, an organization which provides research and business strategy to help companies succeed in spatial computing. Prior to that, she served as CEO of Transformation Group, which advised decision makers on business strategies related to artificial intelligence, augmented and virtual reality, machine learning, facial recognitions, robotics, autonomous vehicles, and related disruptive technologies. Her vast depth of experience also includes several years as an equity research analyst with extensive experience evaluating both public and private companies. So please help me welcoming our guest today, co-author of The Infinite Retina, Irina Cronin. Irina, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really appreciate you coming onto the show. Ah, yes. Great. Thanks for having me, Harp. So talk to us a bit about your journey. How did you get to where you are today? What were some of the struggles you faced along the way? How did you overcome them? Wow, that's a huge question. So I started out as an econ major, as you noted um, at the beginning. And uh, for a long time, I was a numbers person. And I worked on Wall Street for eight years. First, I was an equity research analyst. Um, and for a while, I was just doing strategy just for all kinds of different companies. So it wasn't just spatial computing, uh, AR, VR, AI, et cetera. But in 2015 or so, uh, when I was in the Bay Area, I had a friend of mine that asked me to do strategy for a company that was doing VR. So that was my introduction into the space. Uh, and ever since then, I've specifically just been doing um, VR, AR, AI, and now the wider spatial computing. Yeah. In terms of difficulties along the way, you know, this is a nascent uh, kind of industry. Um, it's going to still take a while for it to develop, but that's what makes it really awesome. So, Talk to us about spatial computing. Like, what is it and how is it different from regular computing? All right. So, uh, spatial computing, uh, all the technologies that a person, virtual being, or robot would need to move through a three-dimensional world. Uh, so, currently, everything is two-dimensionalized. These technologies include artificial intelligence, computer vision, augmented reality, VR, sensor technology, and automated vehicles and anything else that you would need to do that. So basically, it's taking, like we're on Zoom. Actually, we don't even have the one of the dimensions, which is visual. So this is a podcast. Let's say we were on Zoom and it was a, a virtual call. That's still 2D. So there's a while to go before everything becomes three-dimensionalized, but I think it will happen. 
So what's the state of spatial computing look like today? And what are some ways that it's already integrated into our life, but maybe we just don't know it, we haven't recognized it? Okay, so I thought that spatial computing was special enough, even now, to write a book. So you mentioned the Infinite Retina. Infinite Retina, it, it focuses on spatial computing and on how seven industry verticals will greatly be affected by it. Those verticals are transportation, technology, media, and telecom, manufacturing, retail, healthcare, finance, and education. So I'd have to say that already in several of those verticals, you do have elements of spatial computing. So uh, logistics and, and retail and manufacturing have already used augmented reality since 2008, albeit it, it wasn't true 3D. It was a flat kind of 2D layering uh, on top of the real world up until recently. That changed and became 3D and now um, integrates it with audio commands um, and other types of really great features. So healthcare are using VR for pain control and for a training and trainings being used in all kinds of other verticals as well, just starting in education. And as you know, for technology, media, and telecom, there was location-based entertainment for VR, which is a little bit on hold right now due to COVID, but that's still steaming ahead. And transportation, spatial computing includes autonomous vehicles. So that's very much being worked on now. So a lot of people aren't aware of it, but there's a lot happening in spatial computing currently. So where do you see spatial computing technology headed in, say, the next two to five years? Okay, so it's been leaked. Apple is going to come out with their headsets in 2022, 2023. 2022, it's supposed to be like a hybrid VR, AR headset, and 2023 is dedicated AR. I really do believe that when Apple comes out with at least one of the headsets to kick it off, that there will be obviously more people that even know about it. But not only that, they will actually buy the headsets and it'll become very commonplace. Currently, there are some headsets available like the HoloLens 2 from Microsoft and Unreal, which is also another AR headset and some headsets that are more for industrial and enterprise use, such as Realware. However, in two to five years, it should be going more mainstream. So regular everyday people will be able to access and use it. Additionally, uh, I'm currently working with a, a company called Mojo Vision, which is working on an augmented contact lens. So this is another way you could integrate spatial computing into your world. And what do you think are some of the biggest concerns that society will face due to spatial computing technology in the next two to five years? I think the biggest thing has to do with the data, the amount of data and the types of data that will be able to be corralled due to spatial computing, eye tracking, voice recording, uh, recording of all the, the 3D that could be initiated by the person who actually has the headset or contact lens or whatever on. Privacy is a really huge issue, will only become bigger so that needs to be worked on in terms of apps that can control that, that are initiated by people who actually make those choices and not the businesses that don't give you the access to what they're actually capturing while you're using the devices. Another aspect that could possibly be an issue is what I call tech addiction. So obviously, everybody knows about this already, where everybody is on their cell phone all the time. Even when you're eating dinner, you're looking at your cell phone. This will only increase when you have a headset or a piece of hardware that is so valuable in that it gives you even more information at any moment through voice command. So this, this, is, a very, this is something that will need to be tackled in the future. By any chance, have you seen the show on Amazon Prime called The Feed? Yeah. 
when I was going through your book and I was looking, you know, through that, I was kind of drawing parallels to that world. And I thought it was very interesting to see that, you know, you're talking about bringing this thing into, into real life in, in a sense, that spatial computing type of thing. Um, it, it seems like something that's far off in the distant future, but it's probably actually more closer on the horizon than we actually think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sci-fi has always been kind of like that. It, it reaches towards the desires and sometimes the negative features of what will eventually happen. And I mean, it's already foretelling certain aspects of it. But the reality is, of course, a little less dramatized, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. Yeah, and your book is really interesting. I'd love to get a little bit uh, more into it, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, starting with the first chapter, I thought was really interesting: the Prime Directive. So, and, and you open with this this question: you know, what makes us human? So, what makes us human, and what is the Prime Directive? Okay, so I I want to switch the, the the wording a little bit around. So, I don't want to say exactly what makes us human, but an element that is distinctly human and that we try to replicate on a daily basis is this, I, this, this feeling and need to dramatize our experiences. So uh, it's, I, I always have found it a very interesting and strange and wonderful that human beings read a lot of nonfiction. We love to see movies and plays that narrate some other person's or, or a fictional or non-real story uh, back to us. And for some reason or other, we get some kind of great feeling out of that. So the more I think about that, the weirder it gets. So I usually stop thinking about it. <laughs> um, but the, the prime directive has to do with the fact that I think human beings, our biology, our psychology and emotions all tied together, we like to be able to control our senses. Spatial computing, in a way, allows us to be able to do that and recreate things in a much more realistic way, which fits our need to narrate things back to ourselves. And this works the best when we're able to do it in the most realistic way, which is three-dimensionalized and includes also audio that allows us to make us feel like this is real. So that's why all these technologies that replicate as true as possible reality are very important to spatial computing. So how, how does spatial computing play into meeting that prime directive? Uh, well, you know, um, if you have something that you're tricked into believing with VR, you're tricked into believing that you've entered a new space that a moment ago didn't exist. So you've entered a new world. That is a positive reassurance that spatial computing is working to guide us into our desire to replicate a three-dimensionalized experience that feels real to us. So that prime directive is human beings like to relive and rethink things as close to possible as reality. Memories are very much a kind of example of this. Uh, people who want to remember something over and over again, that memory isn't necessarily the most vivid three-dimensionalized version. But imagine if you could actually see something that makes you remember something in a true-to-life way, that would be really awesome. Uh, and the technology that would allow you to do that. So there's a lot that goes on there. There's computer vision, there's eye tracking, there's uh, true-to-life audio that moves as you move, and all kinds of other intricate things that people don't even realize would go into something like that. 
I think it's very interesting in your book. I loved how you said the distinction between Homo sapiens and whatever came before us is just the way that we use tools. You know, that we use tools just to to survive more efficiently and kind of gain control of our surroundings. So in what way do you think spatial computing will change what it means to be human? Because as you mentioned, you know, when we put on these augmented reality headsets, uh, VR headsets, how can we change what's in our environment? How will spatial computing change what it means to be human? This is a great question. In fact, um, there are a number of philosophers that have been talking about this for the last 20 years, actually. So um, the idea is that imagine what a cell phone is to a human being right now. It's viewed as an extension of our brain and our biology. So basically, it's taken the information that you would have um, in your mind or that you would have had an encyclopedia, uh, which was a physical thing, a book, and it's moved it to this uh, small object that we uh, use. What happens when we start knowing how to spell and we just kind of write and it gets auto-spelled? Also, we don't know people's phone numbers. It just automatically comes up. People you know, in the 90s had to know what everybody's phone number was. You had to memorize it or write it down or have a phone book. So what happens is spatial computing is even more, is stronger, obviously, than a cell phone. Although a lot of the guts of the power can come from the cell phone for spatial computing, by the way. What it does is it extends the, the human brain uh, to be able to know more than you used to before. I mean, imagine if you were wearing an augmented smart contact lens that could uh, automatically give you the information you want by eye gaze. You could come off looking as the smartest person in the world. No one would know that you're actually receiving your information from a contact lens. So those are the, the few things. There's so many ways. Obviously, I could go into autonomous vehicles as well. You know, people would not need to know how to drive anymore. You know, the Technology becomes a, a huge, it's always been a tool for us, but even more so with spatial computing. So yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. And in your book, you talk about the four paradigms. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of expand on that for us. What do you mean by paradigm? And maybe can you walk us through the four that you talk about in your book? Sure. So if you look at the Oxford Dictionary in terms of uh, what the word paradigm is, it's defined as a typical example or pattern of something, a model. The way paradigm is used here, it's a little more actually like a stage, something that uh, is experienced through time. They call, you can even put the word shift next to it, listed like paradigm shift. And I'll explain it a little better now so that makes more sense in terms of, of why it's called a paradigm. So in terms of uh, the, the technical four paradigms, the first paradigm came with the arrival of the desktop computer. So obviously, there were many more uh, technical paradigms uh, before that. But we're talking about for human beings in terms, everyday human beings using computers. Okay, so we start with that first paradigm. The second one uh, came with graphical interfaces and thinking. So what do I mean by graphical interfaces? It's that GUI, graphical user interface. It's the way things look to the consumer who's actually using the computer or technical device rather than looking at something like zeros and ones uh, for the computer or some kind of primitive example uh, that's served up to you that makes it harder for the consumer to use. So I'll give you an example of that. Prior to Excel, there were a number of different versions of programs that you could use that you'd be able to enter numbers into uh, that would crunch the numbers. And then, you know, you could actually print the spreadsheet or you had word processors like Lotus123. So, and there was stuff that was more primitive than that as well, where you would actually have to put in a command to indicate how you would want the thing to be printed rather than just print it. So the graphical user interface was very important to allow more people who are not technical Unix people that know commands to use computers. And this allowed 
for more computers to be used. So that was a huge uh, change. A third paradigm has to do with everything mobile. So uh, this, this came with cell phones and stable connectivity, internet connectivity, as well as laptops to be able to move your computer and technology around. And then the fourth one now is spatial computing, where it combines all of these aspects, but adds a whole lot more to it with three-dimensionality. Thank you for that. What's the intersection between spatial computing and artificial intelligence look like? I, I really think that the, the apex of what spatial computing could be uh, definitely has to include AI and aspects of AI like machine learning. In order for something, let's say you're moving through 3D, the data that's collected has to be configured in a way and understood uh, how you're moving through that space, what is it that you're that you're saying? So it needs to recognize that accurately. It needs to serve up. Uh, let's say you're using something like Siri or whichever other, you know, Google or whatever, to uh, or Alexa to give you information. That also uses machine learning to be able to serve up the right information to you. Um, so it's this this interplay between 3D verbal communication, and then forecasting where you're going to be moving next or where you'd like to move next, along with um, serving up words that could help you find or do what you want. So this is extremely important, and I don't think you can disengage one from the other. Yeah, and I think you painted a pretty interesting picture, compelling picture, uh, when you talk about how spatial computing meets voiced first technology like Siri and Alexa. Can you kind of give us a, a hypothetical scenario as to, you know, wondering what the intersection of spatial computing and voice first technology like mm -hmm. Siri and Alexa look like? Yeah. Like when these two technologies collide, like what positive advantages do you see that playing out for like the our prime directive, so to speak? Well, as, as I was saying, I don't think that even with VR, so this is before you have the, the AR headsets coming out, right? There are, there are aspects of AI that are used that are invisible. So, and that's even before voice-first tech, right? And that's in understanding your positioning in space. So you need to have that. Now, layered on top of that then, when you have augmented reality, which is better for using uh, voice first like Siri and Alexa, because you're using it in a very pragmatic way, uh, you're able to see the reality in front of you and then the three-dimensional aspects overlaid on top of it. So uh, let's say you're walking down the street and you're looking for a particular store. You could actually talk to your device it's to find out where it is, or you're looking for a particular object to buy and you don't know which store it's located in, in the, in the area that you're in that you're not familiar with yet. It serves as a very augmented version of your current cell phone when you're in, in different locations. It could, it could trail where you, which location you're in and give you pointers as to where you should go. It could give you information, let's say your family member's asking you something, you could get it at the drop of a dime, combined with location understanding. It can forecast where it thinks you're going and give you some things that you might want to do or where you want to eat. Those are very down-to-earth everyday pedestrian things that people actually want and need. And you could do very easily by having an AR headset combined with Siri and Alexa. Yeah. Or Google or whichever you're using. I think that's a really fascinating use case, especially for me in particular, because I'm notorious for, uh, my wife will attest to this, whenever we, <laughs> whenever we travel anywhere and I pull up Google Maps and we type in the address for where it is that we want to go, uh, I usually take us maybe a block or two in the opposite direction before realizing that, oh, it's the other way. So that'd be so cool to have, like, you know, if we have those glasses and it's like literally like, okay, turn around right now, you're going the wrong way. Help point us in the right direction. I think that'll be 
that's something I'm really looking forward to. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's more, it'll definitely be more proactive. So it's not only you're asking something and getting the answer, it'll actually offer up these kinds of things and will tell you, yeah, you're going in the wrong way or give you suggestions. And it, it currently does not work that way. Yeah. 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 It's very interesting. Like the, uh, the picture you paint for the future in the book, I'm super excited to see all this stuff roll out and become a reality. So you mentioned briefly in your book that AI using unsupervised algorithmic systems could potentially create a culture and a government for its own embodied bots. I found that to be extremely fascinating. Would yeah. you mind just describing <laughs> how you imagine that looking like? Yeah, this, I mean, most people would look at this and say, oh my gosh, that's like really scary. And what are you, what are you talking about? So, um, okay, so what I mean by unsupervised Basically, I mean, AI right now, the, the status of it uh, is so, no one has to worry about robots um, taking over the world, okay? I mean, it is, it, there's, it does not work that way. Most of AI is supervised. And what I mean by supervised is the rules in which the algorithms and the AI works are, are very well defined by human beings. So even where the AI reaches out to find out more information, algorithmically is mapped out by human beings. By unsupervised, um, the algorithm allows the machine or the software to go outside of the boundaries that you have artificially given it. And so it, it allows the AI to go out and, uh, out of that algorithm or the, the, the boundaries. It's hard to explain this. I, I hope that it's coming through. So um, basically, you can say that the AI, quote unquote, is able to think on its own. Uh, obviously, a machine or a software system does not think on its own. But it gives the appearance of doing that because it's not guided by the rules that you've set aside for that algorithm. So imagine um, if you do have start to get some really smart from the outside, smart-looking uh, AI creatures or uh, machines that take on basically a life of their own uh, in a beneficial way. Okay, I'm not talking about robots taking over the world. I'm talking about robots still helping people and humanity. And it should be bounded as well as unsupervised in, in some ways and, and bounded in others. Now, if you have smart AI, they're going to be integrating with human beings and they're going to be integrating with other smart AIs. The coordination of, of the machines and the coordination of human beings needs to be regulated in some way. And there needs to be some societal understanding of what those regulations are for everything to be coordinated. So I do think this day will come. Um, I, I don't see the evil empire of robots coming. I see something uh, where robots and AI are, are helping human beings. And it just needs to be prescribed in a way that it does continue to help us. And if there are any dangers that might come out of it, that also we stop that. But you know, any kind of sci-fi future you might think of where robots are sitting around talking amongst themselves. That's a possibility, actually. So, yeah. Yeah, I was really fascinated by that little paragraph that you had in the book, and it really got me thinking. So, yeah, thanks <laughs> yes, for it. Yes, a little farther out in the future than, than five years, for sure. But the way that we're going because of, of the Prime Directive, which we were talking before, the need to replicate experiences and, and tool making, all that kind of stuff, I really do think it's going in that direction. So switching to something that's a little bit, uh, I think, more closer to our current you know, state of technology and, and something that I know yeah. people are really interested in is spatial computing and autonomous vehicles. Uh, so I'm wondering how will spatial computing and autonomous vehicles help shape cities of the future? Yeah, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately because I've had some talks with some amazing people 
recently. So basically with an autonomous vehicle, and we're also including flying cars with this, right? Or EV, EVTOLs. It's the, the city center, you know, where you have the, the downtown where people will go to shop and then you have the suburbs and, and then you have the entertainment area that you go to and restaurants and places that you go to meet people to congregate. A lot of this is going to change if it's not important to go to a particular place to do anything. If you could do a lot, first of all, by by staying at home. So it's kind of like the Netflix effect, right? Where people don't go to movie theaters anymore. You could stay home and you could you could get all your entertainment at home. You could get stuff delivered to you. So maybe autonomous vehicles will be used to continuously be able to deliver stuff to you like food and all your clothing and all that kind of stuff. So that's one kind of vision of what the future looks like where things are brought to you rather than you going out into space and getting stuff for yourself. The other vision has to do with decentralization of the whole city as a result. So you can have a job. You don't have to take public transportation anymore. You can take these autonomous vans to to go to your work if you're working, if you happen to have, still have an office that is located somewhere. That office doesn't even have to be in any place that is recognizable as a business center. It could be anywhere. If you're taking a flying car, the amount of time that it would take for you to get anywhere is cut into 10. Uh, so it's 10 times less the amount of time sometimes that you would need to drive uh, with congestion. So there's a lot of freedom that human beings could get from using autonomous vehicles that allows them to be more free in how they go about their business and how they go about their lives. And the cities, as a result, will probably change in terms of the landscape then very different from what exists now. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I've been waiting for flying cars ever since I was a little <laughs> boy when I saw Back to the Future Part 2 for the first time. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I think we're five years behind, right? Weren't they supposed to happen in 2015? But you talk about in that same chapter where you're talking about autonomous vehicles, cities of the future, you talk about this concept of data bubbles. Yeah. Can you talk to us a bit about what data bubbles are and what they have to do with cities of the future? All right. So basically, if you can envision as kind of like a metaphor. So as you're moving around in 3D space, so let's say you happen to be walking down the street, or you could be in your car as well. I mean, you could be in a data bubble while, while the whole car could be in a data bubble. What's meant by bubbles is that there's locale information that is continually being updated as you move through space. As you ask your audio device, you know, Siri, Google, Alexa, whatever, for information or advice, that data bubble gets updated along with your locale bubble or locale information. Basically, it all depends on where you are geographically geographically in space and what you are doing uh, and how you're doing it in space that constantly gets updated as you move through it. So anyone who's taking calculus, it, it's kind of like taking the switch from two-dimensional geometry to three-dimensional calculus where as you move through space, things get updated. So that's what we mean by data bubble. What? Oh, yeah. How, what it has to do with cities of the future. So basically, as more information comes so much more easily to the person who's using the spatial computing device, there is less energy that needs to be put towards getting anything done. So we, we talked about autonomous vehicles bringing things to you. That's an aspect of a, of a data bubble. The In this case, the data bubble are in two locations. First location is the consumer. The second one is in the autonomous vehicle that needs to have the data understanding to be able to do the job that it's doing for you. So the decentralization of cities as a result uh, comes from data being more readily understood and personalized to the person. Yeah. And so what's the future look like when spatial computing meets these delivery methods? Um, you had a really interesting chapter in your book about that. Can you kind of discuss that at a high level and maybe talk about some of the concerns that local municipalities are going to be having with the use of this technology? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a huge question. So if you're talking about the, the Pokemon Go, there's like a, a Pokemon Go effect where people are running around outside looking for imaginary objects, right? <laughs> and it becomes a really big thing. Uh, so you have like a congregation of people 
who seemingly from the outside, you don't know what's happening, but those are who are playing the game actually can see everything very well. So there'll probably be these kinds of like huge congregations of people doing this. There'll be people who will anchor uh, uh, non-real objects in space for others to come and find them, you know, see them and, and read the description of what they are. It's possible that spaces in the future, so right now as you're walking down the street, all you see is the street and the stores that you know are there and parks and stuff like that. In the future, um, your space can be populated with non-real three-dimensional objects, depending on what you opt into or what game you're playing or what you, you're trying to do. So that this becomes an alternate world that's overlaid on top of the real one. What does that mean for cities in general? Well, you've now introduced a new space that didn't exist before that your imagination, you can, I mean, it's not even created really yet, but you can imagine that you could have virtual stores that are, that are fully three-dimensionalized in front of you that are better to deal with than, you know, when you're looking at your 2D computer. You can maybe walk through the stores, something like that. It could, there's, could obviously be a lot more art that, that's happening that is not visible to the regular eye. There, there can be a lot of apps that are built up to allow for people as they travel through 3D space to buy stuff. That means that the, the actual physical stores, which are closing down, due to COVID and other reasons, that will happen even faster. Things will become much more virtualized. So again, the, the business center or the, the place where you would go to the mall, which is dying, it, it will start to really completely disappear, I think. And then if you're working from home, uh, virtualized work, there's no need to go to the office anymore. Uh, so the, the business centers are, are going to go. Wall Street will probably still be there in New York for a while because of trading, et cetera. So yeah, these clusters of areas that exist where people would go to to get things done. Now, it's, now thing, the, the information and the data and everything is coming to you. And it's even more personalized than before. So there's no need to go anywhere that's the biggest change so as an avid pizza eater and uh, <laughs> pizza pizza consumer myself i was yeah. very tickled by the the section you had in your book about how spatial computing can change the way we get our pizza oh yeah would you mind, would you mind talking about that uh, for our audience okay so actually it's interesting that you bring that up because um it's an example of how business and desires of uh, consumers don't necessarily intersect. So there was a company called Zoom, right, that was delivering pizza and actually making the pizza, maybe not so well, as it was traveling down the street uh, to be delivered to you by robot. This company actually petered out fairly recently, not due to it not being a good idea because people are actually ordering it. And I think it's really cool it had to do with operational issues. So a lot of the time you have these technologies that uh, people actually want, but the actual operations and the people running those companies don't do a great job. So there are other things that go into why a, a company and a technology is not currently working. But there's tons of these little robots now on wheels. There's one company called Starship, but there's several other ones around the world that are delivering stuff from stores, restaurants and pharmacies as well, whatever you need to get delivered. In fact, this started in Berkeley a few years ago, the University of Cal California, Berkeley. Even two years ago, when you're going there, you could see these little robots going up and down the hill. It's awesome. It's contactless, which is great for you know this issue with COVID. It, it's fairly fast. It very rarely gets hijacked. They're very heavy. Or they, they're made to be heavy so that people can't just pick them up and play with them. There, there was a, a funny example in Berkeley. Uh, sometimes you get some very interesting people. There was a guy who was watching these little 
robots go up and down the street for several weeks and he got mad at them. He actually stole one and he put it in his garage, but it had a beacon on it and the police came and arrested him. So (laughs) all kinds of different things will be happening in the future due to spatial computing. This is just one of them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's like these things usually not not only do they have the location, but they also take pictures. So yeah, it yeah. could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could take a picture of the person who's tampering. Yeah. You know, with with the, the the little animal. It's like a little animal. Yeah. Yeah. So given our current global situation with COVID and social distancing, how do you see spatial computing impacting industries that involve live attendance? Like concerts, sporting events, seminars, conferences. Um, How will spatial computing change the way uh, we attend these types of events? There is an issue, obviously. COVID-19 is life-changing for for these areas. Real, the live conferences obviously stopped over the last few months, and there have been virtualized uh, events that have popped up. Uh, not every conference that was live became virtualized. Uh, so many of them just decided not to have an event this year. Um, and they pushed it out to even like mid next year. Uh, several companies have announced that they're not going to have a live event until you know even June or later. So that's huge. Right now, we have a lot of 2D kinds of filler ways that go, that go around the issue to virtualize things. So we're on Zoom right now. So that's one example. There's a whole lot of other apps that virtualize people's communication, but that's not necessarily spatial because it's 2D. The coming of VR being used for personal communication, business communications is still quite a few number of years out. I do think that COVID has started people thinking more along the ways of uh, having virtualized communication, which is great. I think it's kickstarted that kind of like um, mentality of it being accepted and remote work being now elevated to the extent of it being viewed as real work before COVID. Anytime you would say you did work remotely, there would always be kind of stigma attached to it, as if maybe you're not working as hard when you're working remotely, or the type of job that you're doing isn't viewed as that important as one that you would need to go into the office for. So that's changed. So a lot of the changes that will be extremely helpful for the eventual use of spatial computing is starting now. And I think that is the most important thing that COVID has brought about. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on that. So I was wondering if we could shift gears a little bit and wondering if you could speak about your experience being a woman in STEM and if you have any advice or words of encouragement for the women in our audience who are breaking into or are currently in tech. Sure. I'd say the most important thing you could ever do is to be extremely persistent no matter what. I mean, it's obviously important to have great technical skills and to be able to communicate well, all of those things uh, are necessary, some kind of business sense. But if you don't pair that up with continuous persistence, it's not going to go anywhere. And I think that's a lesson that people eventually learn if they really are still interested in going the same path that they, they started in, but not to give up and to, to see any kind of setback that or imagine setback that the person feels they 
they've gone through that uh, it really shouldn't end what their aspirations are, that they should still keep going. And what can the data community do, the STEM community do to foster the inclusion of women in data science, in AI, and in STEM in general? Yeah, I think this question uh, can actually be bridged and used not only for data and AI, but as you said, for STEM and, and, and sci- science, women who are interested in math. And this question really makes me think to the extent that I go back to when I was at university. I think it's extremely important to have professors and the students in a class, let's say, literally take time to listen to everyone who wants to speak, who has a question, and not let anyone monopolize that precious time. It's sometimes the, the way it's set up now, sometimes it could feel like the person who speaks the loudest or speaks the longest it is possibly smarter or whatever. You get this a lot uh, in, in philosophy, which is very similar to science, and that includes data science and AI. So I think it's, it's extremely important to give respect to people who have questions that don't necessarily want to come off as looking ultra smart, but actually want to learn and let those people also shine. Absolutely love it. This is kind of the way people talk in philosophy. I was reading Seneca uh, letters to Stoic. One of the letters earlier today, I think it was like uh, letter 30 or something like that. I don't know. It's, it's on the proper style for a philosopher's discourse. It was the title yes. of that letter. And yeah. and that's exactly what he was talking about. He's like, man, you guys need to just get to the point and <laughs> not beat around the bush and just say what you got to say. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that perspective. Um, last formal question before we jump into a quick lightning round. And uh, that question is, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? What I was saying before about persistence, just do what you want to do and don't let anybody stop you. So I've always been driven like that. So whether I decided to, to learn Chinese or whatever, it's like, it might take you some time and you might think, is it all worth it or whatever? But that initial fire that you have for something, there's a reason for it. So keep going. I, I dig it. Thank you so much. So let's jump into a quick lightning round here. Uh, so if you could put up a billboard anywhere in the world, what would it say and why? Yeah. Billboard would say, have courage to do what you want to do. Well, how, how about the why behind that? Have courage to do what you want to do. So why that message? <laughs> I think a lot of people, including some really smart people, they can sometimes uh, feel like they're bounded by what their family expects them to do. This is not stopped. You know, this is an age-old question with, with, with family expectations. And depending on your background, you might want to go in one direction, but you feel like you have to go in the other direction because of what your family wants to do. And it could take decades for that person to kind of unwind the life that they have created due to those expectations to actually do what they originally thought they wanted to do. So, yeah. That's very beautifully put. Thank you. So what is something you believe that other people think is crazy? I tend to believe that human beings have souls. (laughs) So what would you, what would you think is the most bizarre aspect or quality of human nature? The need to fit in. Yeah. So I actually think about that a lot. Yeah. What's an academic topic outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time researching up on? I think anyone that does data science has to understand behavioral science. So you, you, you can't just have the, the numbers and the understanding of, of numbers. You have to understand people a little better and how those numbers are affected by people. So a great example of this is Dan Ariely, who's the professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke. Yeah, I think he wrote that book, Predictably Irrational. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he's got some excellent works. Um, speaking oh, of books, yeah. Uh, yeah. what's the number one book, fiction, nonfiction, or maybe <laughs> one of each that you would recommend our audience read? And what was your most impactful takeaway from it? 
it has to be um, Animal Farm by George Orwell, and uh, <laughs> which I think is is very important for people to read, especially those that are more numerically influenced. So basically, what I took away from it is logical systems can't solve or cannot solve some major issues in human society. So you can do all the data science you want, you could do all the predictive systems and all that kind of stuff, but that's not going to solve the major issue. There's other stuff that, that's going on there that you need to take into account. So if we could somehow get a magical telephone that allowed you to contact 18-year-old Irina, what would you tell her? Travel even more. What's the best advice you have ever received? The counterintuitive not to always listen to advice, no matter how good intentioned it may seem. I like that. I like that. So what song do you currently have on repeat? All right. So for the past couple of weeks, Jean-Michel Jarre. So any of the uh, oxygen parts uh, and it's electronic music. So it's not really a song, but that's what I've been listening to. All right. I'll have to definitely check that out. Uh, oh, yeah. How do you... I'm a huge fan of electronic music, uh, especially like the instrumental type. So that's definitely right up my alley. How do you spell the artist's name? Oh, Jar. The it's uh, Jean Michel. So uh, uh, and the last name is J A R R E. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll definitely add those to the show notes as well, and probably spend this afternoon listening to that while I work. So, w- where could people find your book? Absolutely available on Amazon, and also from the Pack site online directly. And what's next on the horizon for you? Any new projects coming up? Any new books coming up? Yeah. So I I run a company that happens to be called Infinite Retina, and that's how the book actually became the Infinite Retina. For my company, I'm developing research offerings and and products so uh, that are very similar to uh, what I did as an equity research analyst, but for spatial computing. So that currently doesn't really exist that well. It's not well done yet. And I'm also scoping out a new book as well. Awesome. Looking forward to uh, having you on to talk about that. So how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? It's really easy. I'm always on my computer and I have all my social open. Um, So if you send me a message on LinkedIn, LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. I mean, you could send me a message on Twitter or Facebook if you're connected to me, but LinkedIn, I'm able to get messages from people that aren't even uh, connected to me. So it's easy and we could take it from there. Erin, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on to the show today. I really appreciated you talking to us about your book and kind of painting a new vision of the future for us. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed it.